0: everybody, and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. This is the post-New Orleans edition of our podcast. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil something right now, which is that Hannah and I were together all weekend, and yet we did not eat brunch <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um
0: And I guess before I tell you that, I should introduce my co-host, Hannah, who I did not have brunch with in New Orleans.
1: Um, I really just now was about to do that midsummer breathing thing again (laughs) as my as my introduction and hey we did not have brunch together but we uh chugged smoothies in the car on the way we did a half marathon well full marathon for you yeah it's
0: like we did basically the same thing that's pretty much the same and we did um we did eat a lot of food. So if you follow us on Instagram, I'm not on Instagram. If you follow us on Twitter, we don't have an Instagram account. Um, you so may have if you follow seen, us on
1: Instagram, um, look out because that's not us. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, if you follow us on Twitter, we're at 28dayslady underscore ER. Um, if you follow us over there, you might have seen a photo I shared of me chugging a dogfish head sequench when I finished my marathon on Sunday and asking if that counts as brunch. Um, So that's probably (laughs) about as close as we got, but we did eat lots of awesome food. And even though we didn't technically have brunch, we did go to a meal after the race on Sunday that was timed in such a way that like it, I think qualifies as brunch. Um, And I think we should talk about that meal because Nothing about that meal went the way that we wanted it to go. Um, so if you are a person who has been to New Orleans, you are likely familiar with the restaurant called Layuza's. If you are not someone who's been to New Orleans, um is an old family-owned restaurant in New Orleans. Um, I should have looked this up before the podcast, but I think it's been around since the 30s. Um, it's really awesome. And several years ago... Um, it became our family's tradition after the rock and roll new orleans half marathon to go to lauza's for um for lunch um, and so we love Layuzas for a couple reasons one it's relatively close to where the race ends at city park two they have a fried green tomato po'boy that will just absolutely knock your socks off and three and perhaps most importantly their signature cocktail is called a Bushwhacker, and it is essentially a Wendy's chocolate frosty with alcohol in it, which they serve in a giant frosted goblet made of glass, which is really awesome. Um,
1: I would not know that because they were out. They <laughs> were out.
0: So a quick piece of editorial here. La Uza's, um, is a neighborhood joint serving po-boys seafood and Creole Italian fare that opened in 1947. So I just wanted to make sure I get that date right because I, as I have stated, am a huge, huge fan of Laiuzas. So um, Hannah ran a half marathon on Sunday, along with my, our mom and our sister-in-law and our brother. um, And I did the full marathon at the end of the race. The plan is always to go to Laiuzas. And so for weeks, probably months, honestly, I have been telling people how excited I am to have a bushwhacker at Lyoza's. Um, So we get to Lyoza's, we put our name in, my partner Jeremy and I walk to the grocery store nearby to get beer to have at the house later. And as we are walking back, we get a text from you guys that we've been seated. And I am so excited that despite the fact that I am post-marathon and walking like I am 150 years old, I am so excited. And then we walk in the door and sit down and you and mom tell us that they have let you know that they are out of bushwhackers
1: <laughs> for the day too For the it was day. Like, almost time to leave uh, or almost time to close. So it was also like we are out and we are not making any more for today. Yeah, um, I think
0: on Sundays they're only open for um, brunch and into lunch. We were they probably close around 3, I'm assuming. Yeah. And I think bushwhackers are a thing that are like pre-mixed in like a frozen drink capacity our waitress said that people will stop by and buy them by the gallon and so um I imagine we have not run into this problem before because we usually are going earlier in the day like if we're all running the half marathon we're going earlier um I really slowed us down by running the the full marathon (laughs) so it's really my fault
1: you slowed us down as a group but you should brag a little that you ran that marathon pretty impressively I would love to brag a
0: little. Uh, (laughs) I'm gonna pause us for one second to try to turn off the heater that just turned on in my uh, hotel room because it's really fucking loud.
1: This is the part of the show when Hannah is all alone. Okay, I'm back.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry for that brief interruption. Uh, I am staying in a hotel while I travel for work and the heater that sounds like a freight train just kicked on so i had to get up and turn it off um yeah, i was concerned so, that
1: you were all of a sudden podcasting from a freeway uh, just the median. middle of the highway yeah um
0: also interesting that you say freeway since we're from delaware and people in delaware don't say freeway um it's fine you so, know all my life <laughs> so uh since you said i should i will brag a little bit um So I ran the Rock and Roll New Orleans full marathon on Sunday, um, and I ran a marathon a couple of years ago in 2018. Ryan, our brother, and I ran the Coastal Delaware Marathon. A what? And what?
1: A what? Marathon. A what? Marathon. Sophie, I explained this joke to you over the weekend. Every time. Oh, I forgot. And you still.
0: Hannah's making a reference to the League. And Hannah, (laughs) as you will learn the more you listen to this show, Hannah has near encyclopedic memory for every person who has ever appeared on a screen in TV, movies, or commercials, and also remembers so many quotes. She's like a walking IMDb. And so, to be related to Hannah or have her in your life is to feel constantly confused and inferior. (laughs) Um...
1: You can put that on the back of uh, your, that'll be your excerpt on the back of my autobiography.
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, get to work on that because I would love to have that. uh, I assume you're going to have me write the foreword, so that's how I will um, close the foreword. Anyway, um, when I ran that marathon back in 2018, I had a lot of issues with injury during my training. Uh, People in my family like to joke that I am, quote-unquote architecturally challenged when it comes to running. That is a real quote from a sports doctor I went to in high school, um, <laughs> I'm, which he was a, I guess nice way of saying that I'm pretty injury prone um, and have legs that are potentially not built to run with ease. Um, if you've ever seen me run, I look kind of like Phoebe and Friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so uh, I did that race back in 2018, but the injuries that I had developed during training came in with full force, sort of before I even hit the halfway point of that race. And so, um, my only real goal with my first marathon was to run the whole thing and I couldn't do that. And I felt very dejected. And there is a really nice story about how, um, that I'll have to tell cause it's one of Hannah's favorites. I probably started walking in that race around mile 20, uh, maybe 21 and, I just felt really, really defeated and frustrated and I was in a lot of pain. And there was a guy and a girl who who were run walking. And so we had sort of passed each other back and forth for the first 20 miles of the race. And so they came up behind me as I was walking and they had um, picked up another runner who was with them and they asked if I was okay, And I said, yeah, you know, I, I hurt my foot and it's just pretty bad. And they said, well, you should come with us. We're run walking and you just, you can just keep up pace with us. And I didn't really want to do that because I just felt really sad. Um, but they talked me into it. And I did the last six miles of the race with them and finished the race with them. And of the four of us, I was the only one for whom it was a first marathon. So when we got to the finish line, they all held back and let me finish first because they wanted me to get good pictures at the finish, which was very, very sweet. Um, And then it turns out that the guy that they had picked up, whose name was Brent, um Hannah and Hannah and my sister-in-law. Yeah. Hannah and my sister-in-law had cheered him on earlier in the race when he was having a hard time. So it was this beautiful kind of uh synchronicity of runners being nice to each other. Um, but all of that to say that I finished that marathon feeling pretty um pretty down, if I'm being honest. I don't know um if our any of our listeners are runners. Um, but I sort of, uh, talked about the idea that I was unhappy with my results and also, um, training for a marathon had given me this real sense of pride and purpose. And so because the result of the race is not what I wanted, then I felt like everything about all of it was a failure and like, Mm. I was not good at running. And so for over a year, I really struggled um, with recurring injuries and with just feeling really down about running and not being able to get back into a groove where running was something that I enjoyed and felt proud about. It just sort of felt like fighting an uphill battle. It was really, it was sort of like trying to wrangle a really fussy toddler. That's what trying to run was like. It felt like
1: I'm familiar. I just
0: wanted, yeah, I know you can relate. I was like, I just want running to be something that's fun again, and it wasn't. And so um, this time around, I trained with a coach um, who our brother uses named Diego. Diego is amazing. If you're a runner like hit me up on Twitter and I am happy to recommend him. Um, But I was able to finish this this marathon. I ran the whole thing, including the hills, which there aren't very many hills in New Orleans, um, but everyone else walked every hill and I ran all of them. Um, and I shaved more than 30 minutes off my last marathon time. So I'm, I'm very much riding a high um, from that. I'm feeling pretty good.
1: Um, one addition to that story is that when we were cheering people on at that, at your previous marathon, mm-hmm. um, one thing that we did was like, ha- like after we'd been cheering people on for a little while, I realized people's bibs had their names on them. So I was like, oh, we should cheer for people individually by name because that will be more motivating. So, when we saw Brent go by, he was, like, he was the only person for a while. Mm-hmm. So, we actually were, like, running along next to him, just, like, screaming, like, you got this, Brent! You got this! And when he, before he ran, ran away, after we had gone, like, around to bend with him, mm-hmm. he said something about, like, he was, like, I was about to give up, and, like, now I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. And, so despite that experience, though, when I was doing the half marathon with um, our mom and uh, sister-in-law, someone <laughs> cheered for me by name. It was a man who was definitely, like, into a little bit intoxicated,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he said... You're- which will a- happen
0: when you run a race in New Orleans. <laughs> there right. are definitely people who just, like, come out to spectate like it's a parade. It's really yeah. fun. Yeah,
1: <laughs> And uh, someone even had a sign that said, worst parade ever, which I thought yeah. was really funny. Um, but this somewhat inebriated man screamed, like you got this, Hannah. And I got so spooked that he knew my name that I grabbed our sister-in-law's arm out of fear. And then uh-huh. my mom and her were both like, Hannah, it's on your. it says your name on your bib. I mean, that's awesome. I was like, um, oh, right, 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 right.
0: You were like, oh, yeah, I've done this before. Um, also, you sharing that story reminds me that one of my... Every time I run a race like this, one of the things that I love the most is seeing the signs that spectators make, and I always try to remember all of them, and then I forget them all, and especially when I run twice as long. Every time I saw a sign, I was like, oh, that's so funny. I should remember that to tell people about it, and then I forgot. So, um, the only sign I remember, and I don't know if you saw it, is that somebody had a sign that said, I love this journey for you, which is a quote (sighs) from Schitt's Creek, and they attribute it to Alexis shit, <laughs> which just like, or not Alexis shit, Alexis Rose, um, which made me really, really happy. So
1: yeah, that's awesome. I did not see that one cause we were pretty far back, but that's pretty great.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So Hannah, before we go even one step further, we need to write an egregious error that we made last week, mm-hmm. which is that we had so much fun discussing midsummer last week and we got into so many different things that we did not rate the movie. So, <laughs> Hannah, <laughs> on our scientifically tested, very consistent rating scale, how would you score Ari Aster's Midsommar?
1: I would definitely give it five out of five Bloody Marys. And in my case, it would be like a Bloody Mary that's like half olives. Oh, damn. <laughs>
0: Um, I would give it five extra bloody Marys. Get it? Wink. Wink. Cause they have period blood in them.
1: Wink. Ew. <laughs> so what you what you mean is uh bloody Mayas?
0: Bloody Mayas.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay, we need to create a cocktail.
0: Listeners of the podcast, tweet us what you First think off, would be in a bloody that. Maya. <laughs>
1: don't listen to the podcast.
0: Tweet us what you think would be in a Bloody Maya, um, and whoever has the best idea, we will send you some kind of fun prize that is to be determined.
1: <laughs> I'm really glad you said we'll send you a fun prize and not like, we will make it and try it. No. Because that definitely um, mean, go to a bad place. <laughs>
0: we will make it and try it if it's not really horrific.
1: Um it doesn't and contain just, bodily fluid. Right.
0: Just a reminder, our Twitter is at the number twenty eight. Days lady underscore ER so let us know what you think would be in a bloody Maya.
1: Um, um I have an idea pers- like off right off the bat. Don't they make like wait, I feel thin- like you should save it until
0: Don't you think you should save it until we get our listener ideas? Because like what if I feel like we should compare your idea to what they were thinking.
1: Okay, should I like write it down though so we know that like I came up with it first?
0: Yes, dude. You can write it in a note on your phone, or you can text it to me if you're really worried that I will um, accredit your idea to someone else.
1: Good. That makes me feel better.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, without further ado, now that we've gotten all the really important stuff off the table, let's get into the reason that we're all really here, which is to talk about 1955's The Night of the Hunter. Um, I was going to Hannah- say
1: crippling loneliness, but... Woof. Right. Um, <laughs> Night of the Hunter. Although
0: I think Crippling Loneliness uh, relates in some ways to aspects of this movie. So Hannah, why don't you tell us about this movie um, and why you picked it?
1: Um, okay, so I picked this movie because A, I love this movie. Um, I think it is, it's a movie that I feel like everybody should see at some point in their life I and mean, it should just be like in everyone's canon of classics. Um, But especially after we watched The Innocents and I saw some parallels and I really wanted to watch this movie even more. Um, But, I mean, primarily just I love it. And I also feel like it's not, it doesn't get enough recognition um, for A, how good it is, B, how important it is, um, and C, how weird it is. And so I wanted to use this platform to draw a little more attention to it. For sure. I was actually wondering, and I really as a, wanted you to see it specifically. Yeah. I was wondering today, Sophia, uh, I wasn't talking to you. I'm talking to the listener. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I was, <laughs> can I talk now? Um, I was wondering <laughs> as I was watching it, um, in what context did you first see this movie? So, um, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but you um, did various film studies in college and I did not. So I wasn't sure if you had watched this film in the context of watching it for a class or if you had watched it for another reason. And I'd love to know sort of because like you said, um, I think it is a movie that sort of gets some love in cult circles, but certainly does not is not a name that is. Like, when you had mentioned it, I had not heard of it before, and I think that's not necessarily uncommon, and so I want to know when you came to see it and and how.
1: Um, Yeah, so, um, yeah, I did take uh, some film classes in college. Um, That's because I have a degree in film. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just uh, to put that out there. Um, (laughs) Why have
0: we not been touting that every episode?
1: I know. Hannah, you're um, really selling yourself short here. I'm selling myself short. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually this book or this book, this movie wasn't actually taught in any of the in any of the classes I took, but it was in one of our textbooks. Um, and one of my like best friends, uh, who I studied with, John. He was telling me, like, when it was in our textbook, he was like, oh, you would love that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But it wasn't until actually I was, like, a senior in college, which was uh, contrary to some people's track. It was my fifth year in college that I was a senior. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's when I finally watched it. And I watched it around Halloween since it is, like, a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Although watching it, I was like, oh, I guess this is kind of a Christmas movie also. I had that same thought. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but yeah, so it was actually funny because, like, even in the context of going to school for film, it was often referenced um, and, like, especially uh, using, like, photos of it, but it was never actually in any of the, like, curriculum that we actually watched. Okay. So even I feel like within the context of some film studies, like, it still doesn't get as much uh, recognition it should yeah
0: well that's really awesome i um first of all knowing john is not at all surprising to me that this is a movie that he likes and and thought you would like uh that feels very fitting to me um so as you mentioned and we talked about on a previous episode when we talked about the innocence uh i had not seen this movie nor had i heard about it um so I was really excited to watch it because the only uh, awareness and knowledge I had was based on what you talked about in that episode. And so um, I was really, really looking forward to this movie. Um, and I really liked it. Let's just get that out of the way right now. Spoiler alert, I really enjoyed this movie. Yes. <laughs> um, and I definitely see why for you um, it, it was reminiscent or not it was reminiscent, but that, you know, I see why a movie like The Innocence would make you think of this movie, um, because clearly I think it is. The Innocence is coming on the heels of this and is influenced by this. Um, This movie is really interesting because the man who directed it, um, Christopher Lawton, was an actor. And this is the only thing he got to direct to
1: direct. Yeah. Although he also says himself that after the experience, like he didn't really want to because he his his uh background was in theater. So after he directed it, yeah, so it seemed like after he directed, he was kind of and especially after it was so critically panned, I think he was like, you know what, this isn't for me, I'm gonna go back to like <laughs> where uh, where I know I shine, yeah. Well, but that's but what I mean. Is I think it seemed like a lot of people who worked on the movie said that like as a director, he was incredibly genuine and caring Mm -hmm. um, and how that, like, really shows in, like, how meticulously everything is crafted, but also how the, how well the actors, like, embodied their characters. Right. So it's sort of a, it's definitely a disappointment that we don't get to see anything else by him because it definitely seems like he could have been um, a much more impactful director if he had had more opportunities.
0: Definitely. And I guess that's sort of what I mean is that You know, if he if he was saying after this movie was sort of panned, um, well, that's fine because I'm going to go back to acting where I know I do well. I mean, clearly he is a director with a really good eye and an interesting flair for visuals. And so it's sad that this movie didn't receive the kind of recognition that I think it deserves at the time it came out, because I would have loved to see him make more things. It's also interesting that you bring up the the way that um, actors on set spoke about him, because I know we both like to peruse the IMDb trivia for this movie. And one of the things that they talk about is that the director, whose name is Charles Lawton, not Christopher Lawton, um, was did not get along with the child actress who plays Pearl, um, who appears to be five or six and apparently would sometimes just chastise her and shout at her between takes and they would leave the camera running. So some of the reaction shots we see in the movie of her reacting in fear to Preacher is actually just her genuine reaction to the director being upset with her, which is kind Mm -hmm. of heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty sad. Although it also said in the IMDb trivia that the little boy actor, uh um, on, like, the other side of it, took himself, like, way too seriously. <laughs> and, like, that that bothered him also. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's, like, he was angry that, like, this little girl couldn't take things seriously enough. But then right. he is also, like, mad at, like, a 10-year-old boy for being too serious.
0: Yeah, it almost feels like he um, doesn't understand that they're kids. And um, <laughs> ki- kids are going to kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, But before we go any further, can you give us a brief synopsis of what this movie is about for anyone who hasn't watched it yet?
1: Luckily for everyone, um, there's a lot of classic, uh, just like really overt exposition in this movie. So you got to set up like pretty quick (laughs) because like literally... Robert Mitchum is driving in the opening of the movie, and he's, like, like talking to God. He's like, hmm, mm-hmm. how many has it been? He's basically like, how many widows have I killed so far? Oh, I should kill some more, and I still got to find that money. So, like, right away, they're like, hey, this is the story. <laughs> Get with it. Right. But basically, Robert Mitchum is in jail with a guy from rural is that West Virginia yes and uh he that man from West Virginia had a wife and kids but he uh did like bank robbery or something he stole a bunch of money in the process of which he killed two people
0: he I think the story is that he stole ten thousand dollars from the bank and he killed two bank tellers
1: okay so
0: and his name is Ben Harper, which is also the name of like a folk singer now, I know, and I so wrote that, that down. made me laugh.
1: <laughs> and they it so many times. They too. really do. They, they want you to know that his name is his Ben name. Harper. Um. Yeah. So they shared a cell in prison, and lucky for Robert Mitchum, Ben Harper has a real penchant for like explaining details of his crimes in his sleep. He's a real blabbermouth. Hmm. Hannah, it's almost like you
0: know other people who say things while they're sleeping.
1: Oh, my God. I cannot believe we were going to talk about our trip to New Orleans and I wasn't going to mention the fact that I shared a room with you and Jeremy and was woken up in the middle of the night with both of you talking at separate points. But then a third time with you talking gibberish to each other from across the room.
0: Yeah, it, we should note that Jeremy and Hannah and I were all in separate twin beds on the perimeter edges of a bedroom. So <laughs> poor Hannah was getting it literally from all sides.
1: Of a um, of a bedroom where we left the door open and at one point Sophie, asleep, <laughs> sat her head up and said, Who's there looking at the dark doorway at four o'clock in the morning?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was, am nothing. You know, if that not a didn't pair. affect
1: the rest of my sleep like at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah And then Like I try to go back to sleep And like 15 minutes later I woke up Because Sophie was like <laughs> And then there's like a Some more silence And then across the room Jeremy goes <laughs> And then Sophie goes like And he goes And then they just like Both went back to sleep <laughs> Such is our love Hannah We don't need real words To communicate We don't even need To be awake <laughs> oh my god if I could communicate through glaring to you while you were asleep, um, you would have gotten a real message from me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so sorry, month.
0: I interrupted you. So the preacher gets all of the information he needs about Ben Harper's family, except well, not where quite. the money is. Yeah,
1: except for where the money is. I was gonna say, unfortunately for me, you and Jeremy's sleep talking wasn't nearly as juicy. And didn't lead me to any. Um, money, but, like, yeah, so he finds out, A, this guy's got a wife and kids in West Virginia, this guy, A, is this guy's also gonna get executed, so he knows, like, she's a widow, and great for him, because he loves killing widows. Especially Um, when there's money tied up in it. Right, so he knows that, like, the kids know where it is, but that doesn't know where it is. So, he rolls up, and at first, I, I guess, like, normally when I've watched this movie... I thought that he was just pretending to be a preacher, because it makes him seem more trustworthy mm-hmm. to people. But then there's parts of this movie where, when he's not, like specifically pretending, like for the sake of the widow and her family, that he still preaches to people like his weird, like super misogynistic um, preaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I was like, oh, he actually is a preacher, but just, like, a crazy one. Yeah. Um, which, for anyone who likes The Walking Dead, um, they didn't come up with that first. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, misogynist preachers have been around for a minute. mm mm-hmm. um, But especially one who's, like, an ominous Southern preacher who's only referred to as... The preacher? Oh wait, no. What was he called in Walking Dead? Just kidding. He maybe was called like the mayor. Yeah, something like that. Or whatever. The, Very similar vibe. The mayor sounds right. Um, but yeah. So he goes to West Virginia, and um, I would say woos this widow, but like, does he even? Not really. But right. somehow she goes from being like one second being like. I don't need a man, I'm just going to focus on taking care of my kids and being my own woman, to five minutes later being like, we're going to leave town in a lope, and like, basically being with her kids, like, hope you're cool with that, but I'm not even going to ask, because I don't care. Yeah. Um, so she's got a real turnaround there. Um, yeah, and then, you know, night one, he really lets her know he is, uh... Terrifying man, not the person she thought she was marrying, and continues to intimidate the children into telling him where the money is. Right. Um, and then I don't know if we're just going to like jump right into it, but like spoiler alert. I guess let's alert. just. Yeah, go ahead. Well, he kills the mom.
0: <laughs> yeah. He
1: slits her throat. Right, which like, I honestly. So I've watched this movie so many times. I did not notice that they actually show or like that her that so one of the most famous scenes in this movie in shots is of her body in a car like weighed down in a car at the bottom of a lake. And um, this movie came out in 1955, you know, when cameras could do a lot less, were a lot bulkier um, and just effects were very different. So... This, uh, that shot was, like, hugely groundbreaking, really difficult to do. Yeah. Um, Like, one thing I read was that the paint they used to paint the underwater set kept, like, peeling off and making the water really murky. So they had problems with, like, getting actually, like, clear visuals. Yeah, because it's beautiful how clear the water is in those shots. Yeah, and how legit the mannequin looks. Yes. Yes. Like, I watched this with, um, Doug, and he had never seen it before and didn't know anything about it, and he was like, he was like, wow, how did they get her to, like, hold her breath that long? Right. Um, I was so for, also
0: trying to figure out if it was a person or a mannequin for most of that shot.
1: Yeah. So, for a movie from 1955 to do that so convincingly is really impressive,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: I did not actually notice that she, that she has a, um, a visible slit in her throat. <gasps> i did
0: not notice that i only got that information when the guy who saw her body said that out loud
1: yeah if you go i didn't see it either until um i was reading about it later and um the studio didn't want that they wanted her hair to be like covering her neck Mm -hmm. but um the director like insisted on it and it so if you go back and look at it you can see it looks more because of like it's an old older film it's black and white um, it looks like a, like she they, she maybe has like a crease in her neck from like wow. the body bloating a little, but you can mm-hmm. actually see that there's like a like legit slit in her neck. Wow, that's crazy! And again, 1955 this movie came out, so that right. was like that was like true gore for people.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's crazy because so like I said, I did not notice that in that shot. I was sort of so transfixed by how clear the picture is and how realistic the body is Um, but later if you miss that that's what happened to her because of course we see the moments leading up to her kill her murder but we don't see it happen and then once um the sort of like town uh the sort of town like boat guy (laughs) i don't know how you describe him he calls himself uncle
1: something yeah, I was going to say, um, I, I, I'm not sure if he's their actual uncle or if that's just like what they call him.
0: But. Yeah, like it, I got the impression that he's not really related to them. We see him earlier in the movie because he is, um, because the little boy has a skiff that this guy is fixing for him. Um, and there's a really adorable scene where the little boy goes over to this guy's little cabin on the lake or on the river, rather. And the guy pours him coffee. This kid is like 10. Yeah. And. They're standing at the window, drinking coffee together and talking like adults. And it is so adorable. Um, And so later on, that guy sees the body while he's fishing. And he doesn't want to tell anyone because he's worried that if he says anything, people will think he did it. And he's sort of racked with the guilt of not knowing what to do and the trauma of seeing the body. And so um, he just sort of drinks himself silly. And there's a scene where he says, that slit in her throat was like an extra mouth Mm -hmm. and he sort of just like says it to himself he's not talking to anyone but i mean apart from showing it being really shocking for the time i have to imagine that describing it in those details would also have been really beyond the pale in
1: 1955. yeah um so that was that was pretty rad um, yeah, and saying it that saying it that way too is like, you know, like that's a pretty graphic way of. Yeah, it's very evocative and it's really graphic. Also, later on, um, later on, the kids when they're on the run and they end up um, getting like taken in by an older woman. She also <laughs> offers the little boy coffee in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, He's I guess I like, was just they, a thing. she's waking him up and she's like she's like come on, I'll make the coffee. <laughs> like uh-huh. like naturally the like and she only lives with children and she was like Yeah. Wake the up, oldest one I'm is maybe coffee. 13. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um so um I want to now that we've sort of synopsized the basics of the movie, I want to go back a little bit. One The moment where I sort of... There were two moments really early on where I was just like, all right, buckle up. Uh, this movie is going to be great. The first one is the opening sequence. So Hannah, like you said, we sort of get this expository bit in the beginning where Preacher is driving and talking to um, to God about this widow that he just killed. But the scene that immediately precedes that, the scene that opens the film is a bunch of kids playing and they open the cellar doors on the outside of the house and we just see an ankle. Mm-hmm. Someone's body is laying in the stairwell.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: which is, I was just sort of like, oh dang, this movie is getting off to a real crazy start right right up here. And then shortly after that, we see Robert Mitchum's character go to a um, burlesque theater um, and he's sort of mumbling to himself about women. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I think we will definitely need to get into about sort of his um like angry, misogynist uh frame where he sort of approaches all women as though they are um dirty and vile and it's and you know And yes, specifically
1: like their sexuality.
0: Right. There's like something it wrong. It's not
1: like a visceral violent reaction.
0: Yes their sexuality is dirty and wrong and that yes, he's killing these widows, but he's doing God's work because Mm -hmm. these women are perverted and wrong. And so while he's watching this burlesque dancer, he puts his hand in his pocket and opens a switchblade and it like, it basically slices open through his pants in a very, very suggestive and phallic nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And that those two scenes happening in the first probably 5 minutes of the movie um I mean I was in I was I was definitely in after those two shots
1: Yeah I think um it sets it up sets it up pretty well like what you're in for that a this is going to be like a this is a horror movie b um mm-hmm. you're, it's like it's going to get pretty intense and b especially for a movie from its time um that it's not really like pulling too many punches Um, But like also one thing that is so cool about this movie is that it takes a lot of like in the in the like the scenery and like the set design and like the mise en scene of everything of the film takes a lot of cues from experimental films, especially like German expressionist Mm -hmm. um, experimental Mm -hmm. films where they use a lot of like shadows and harsh angles Um, and so that's also something about this movie that is so cool is how, because of his theater training too, like how a lot of the sets look like theater sets. Yeah. Um, and that they were, and that they were made to be that way and that they were like, but they're also exaggerated in a way that makes it like really creepy.
0: Yeah. No, I definitely, um, took note of that. He, there are two scenes in particular where I noticed that a lot, and I was, tr- I was struggling to figure out a good way to describe the aesthetic. And what I wrote was far away shots of a setting in profile. And what I mm-hmm. mean by that is the scene in the bedroom be- right before Preacher murders the kid's mom, um, it's sort of like you said, it looks like we are looking at a theater set and we're far away. So there's all this black around the edges that makes it look like the scene is kind of floating. Um, I mean, it doesn't, yeah. it looks like it's the shadows, right? It doesn't look like it's just black space, but it gives it this weird, like your eye is drawn to it because it looks different than the other scenes in the movie. Um, and there's a similar scene where after the. Yeah, and it also,
1: it should be mentioned that it's sort of like um, their bedroom with the shape that it is made with those shadows sort of looks like the outline of like a chapel.
0: Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, And there's a similar scene with um, the kids taking Robert Mitchum down into the basement when they say they're going to show him where the money is. And the way that the scene is framed, you have the bright light of the door in the top right of the screen, and then you have the stairwell coming down with the light coming through the door. And then the basement itself is very dimly lit, but you again have this really stark, lots of um, black and white. And I like what you said about the, um, the influence of German experimental film. I think there's also, um, uh, the director talked about Charles Lofton spoke about being a really big fan of silent films and feeling Mm -hmm. like the way that films with sound should function is that you, they should work without the sound you should be able to watch them without the dialogue and they should still make sense and that the dialogue if anything should be adding to it and so i thought that this might be the case turns out i was right um this film does have an episode of switchblade sisters which as you all know is a podcast i love um and i listened to it and they sort of talked a little bit about that um and sort of in in talking about that, they discussed, and so I think it's worth noting here, um, that Charles Lofton was a massive fan of D.W. Griffith, Griffith, who directed Birth of a Nation, mm. which is um, problematic. <laughs> um, it is, yes. of course, Although- not the only movie that D.W. Griffith directed, and I think like that film does have aspects of it that are not plot related, that are important to the history of film.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is like that yeah. movie is um, technically like a, a huge, that was like, a, it was like a huge step and a huge Right, triumph right. Triumph in film. It's unfortunate that it's plot and everything is absolute trash.
0: Incredibly racist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of the the themes in this movie around um, sexism and fear of female sexuality and and needing to um, control and shame women, because I think that is something that, as we discussed, comes up a lot with The Preacher, and it's something that I took a lot of notes about. Um, and, well, we and I see
1: think it's it, also worth noting that a lot of that is also connected to religion, but in very different ways, like the preacher's version of religion mm-hmm. and what that means and how that relates to sexuality is not the same as some of like the female characters response to it.
0: Right. Right. Um, and so the, the scene for me, I mean, aside from the switchblade in the pocket, which, which just was again, probably one of the scenes I will remember the, the most watching this movie Um is the scene of the wedding night between the preacher and the the um, the child's the children's mother um, mm-hmm. when she sort of comes in the room, he's already in bed. Um, he does not really like even acknowledge that she well, comes into the room.
1: She's like looking at herself in the mirror and like she's sort of like fixing her nightgown and stuff. Like it's her what you can tell like she's she's trying to make sure she looks nice before she like goes to see like her new husband.
0: Right. Um, And he doesn't really acknowledge her at all when she comes in the room and she says something to him and his response is to basically immediately fly into a rage and chastise her for wanting his attention and then basically shames her. He basically tells her that sex is only for the procreation of the of the species and that you only have sex to have children. And that since she already has children, their marriage will be focused on providing for the children she already has, not creating any more. And it's this like really harsh. um, It's really harsh. It was really hard to watch. Um, And that scene ends with her looking out the window and praying to God, and she says, help me to get clean so I can be what Harry wants me to be. Mm-hmm. And then we almost immediately cut to a scene of her um, at like a revival service with him where she is like talking about how she was such a bad wife that she drove her husband to steal because she was selfish and focused on her appearance. Um, yeah. And it's really heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, I mean it's also, it's and it's scary too for A, like, to be a woman and marry someone and have it be, like, night one, you realize this person that you thought was actually, like, a warm and caring person is not that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think something, too, um, that kind of connects to a lot of how people are often shown in, like, profile or how the light and dark is used in the film is that I think that a lot of it is, like, Meant to be that a lot of these people are not showing their full selves. They're only giving you, like, one side or one part of them. And, like, what it suits the situation. Um, And something that's kind of interesting about that is he's got, like, he's got his back to her when he's when she comes in the room. And he's sort of, like, it's, like, his profile. But when he, like, goes off on her, it's, like, full on. Um, But I also think that one of the scary scarier aspects of it is also how quickly she herself changes and like how quickly she is sucked into it like right the fact that you know it's scary and it's messed up that her husband her now husband is like telling her like he says something to her where he's like what did you think that i would that you'd come out here and i would like be excited or i like be pawing at you yeah that's what yeah and um and instead of being like oh no i'm scared she's like oh no i fucked up and right like like i said like early in the movie um this older woman who lives in the town who i wrote um the old lady who has who owns the soda shop ran the acting school that the mom from sleepaway camp went to I think her last name is Spoons. I think she and her husband
0: are last name Spoons.
1: Yeah, uh, she's she's very over the top. But she's always telling her, like, you need to get married again. Let's find you a man. We need to find you a good man. And she keeps saying, like, I don't need that. I'm okay on my own. Like, I'm just going to take care of my kids and focus on myself. Mm -hmm. So it's also really scary to see how she starts off that way. And then so quickly is, like, immediately preaching, like, his like fucked up rhetoric about right. like sex is bad and like caring about what you caring about what you look like or making yourself feel good is bad. Is bad. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean it relates to the conversation that we had about midsummer last week where we talked about the argument that Christian and Danny have where she is completely justified in being upset that he's planning a weeks-long trip to Europe that he didn't tell her about. And that conversation ends with her apologizing for getting upset. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt very similar to that, where she she doesn't... Um, she's not asking for anything unreasonable, and she that scene in this movie ends with her praying to God to make her clean when yeah. there's nothing wrong with her.
1: Yeah, and I mean... Later on, when the children are on the run and they end up um, moving in with this woman who has taken in some other uh, children, orphan children as well, mm-hmm. um, there's an older girl in that group who, who she like, she meets the preacher not knowing who he is, and then she ends up liking him. And he takes her out to get an ice cream... But then when she sort of, like, tries to be somewhat sexual with him, like, where she's really just saying, like, don't I look nice and do you think I'm pretty, he does some things similar where he, like, shuts her down and also is like, you're disgusting for even thinking that. And she does the same thing where, like, she runs home and is like, this is my fault and, like, I need to do better. Mm -hmm. So that a man like that... Will like me? Yeah, which is like no, girl.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's really tough. And actually, I'm glad that you brought um you you led the direction the conversation in this direction because I wanted to talk about you. Sort of alluded to this that preacher sort of stands for um, a version of religion that is very fundamentalist and black and white. Um, mm-hmm. There's a really interesting article I read in Slate today while well, I was after I finished the movie called The Greatest One Off Movie in History, which we'll link to in our show notes. And um, it talks about how Miss Cooper is a character, the woman who is sort of adopting children whose parents have. So this movie is set during the Great Depression. And so some of the kids she's watching, their parents have moved. One kid says their parent is in Detroit, moved to bigger cities where they can try to work and send money home. Um, or have just left their kids because they can't support them. Mm -hmm. Um, Miss Cooper is also a very religious character and sort of creates a really nice foil to um, Robert Mitchum's character. And the article says, I really liked this. So Robert Mitchum's character has the words love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. And he has this very practiced speech about how love and hate are always fighting and they both exist. And um, there's a quote from this article. I
1: was directly the influence behind... Um, the same love and hate, similar love and hate speech, but with the big rings in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, the quote says, just as love
0: and hate both reside in the soul of a man, so do faith and religion serve, as a, corro- serve a corrosive purpose, but an ennobling one as well. And so I really like um, that this movie is sort of able to not be really reductive. It's not this movie is not saying that religion is good or religion is, is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is showing you that any kind of doctrine like that can be manipulated by people to be a force for good or a force for bad. It depends on the way that you're interpreting it and sort of what your intentions are.
1: Yeah, well, and I think because the religious aspect of it is so tied to. The, to, like, the women in the movie's sexuality as well. But mm-hmm. I think it does that in terms of sexuality, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that Miss Cooper says to the girl is because the girl is feeling so guilty, she's been lying to Miss Cooper and saying she's going to sewing lessons when in fact she's been going into town to spend time with boys. And we don't really know, you know, she's not explicit about what she's been doing, but she has been lying to Miss Cooper To and she's been spending time with boys when she probably isn't supposed to. And she feels a lot of shame about it, like you said, because of what the preacher said to her. And Miss Cooper's response is to tell her that it's not your fault. You were just looking for love in the only way that you knew how. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved. And it's this really beautiful, and sort of, I think in some ways, really ahead of its time. It's this really beautiful recognition that... As a as a pretty girl, she has learned her whole life that the way to get love is by being a pretty girl and having mm-hmm. boys pay attention to her because she's pretty. Um, and Miss Cooper basically tells her that, you know, doing you are going to be such a strong and incredible woman and you don't need to feel bad about the fact that you've done this. And it's this yeah. really, really moving scene. And I, I like that you bring that up because it is a good... Another example of offering the counterpoint um, that really sort of makes the whole story feel richer and more full.
1: Yeah. Although I did also write down um, early in the movie that they do have some pretty funny lines that are just like classic older movie lines, where the dad, when he first comes home from robbing the bank, and he's telling the little the son like where to hide where he's hiding the money, he says, "Don't tell your mother; she ain't got no sense." Hmm. <laughs> And then later on, um, when, I can't remember what exactly it's referring to, but when the little boy is, like, telling, um, the uncle, the drunk uncle character
0: about Mm -hmm. his mom
1: and this preacher, he says, it's a shock what a woman will load on a man's back when he ain't looking. (laughs) Uh, So, like, it's funny, because it's also just, like, um there are also a lot of peripheral characters and men in particular in the movie who are also sort of perpetuating like similar ideas about like oh women (laughs) like (laughs) right they can't do anything right (laughs) yeah
0: um also this is sort of unrelated but um my one other thing that i had a note of was that I got real Frank Cap- Capra vibes, especially in the beginning. So the, the, the opening, opening scene of this movie is Miss Cooper's head sort of floating in space, talking to <laughs> the floating heads of all the kids. And it feels a lot like some of the shots of the angels talking in um, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. <laughs> um, which just really made me smile because it's such a different movie. Um, but it definitely did have shades that felt like Well and by the end uh, it's a wonderful Scott's life. It's
1: a wonderful life vibes when it's like, It's Christmas and everybody's yes. happy now.
0: Definitely, definitely. Um any other thoughts that you want to cover, Hannah?
1: Um well she has that th- line at the end too where she's like she was like when I look around, like something that always gives me hope is that children have the strength to endure. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Wow, what a great way to end this movie at a time like this <laughs> Right. In the world. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think if I miss anything in particular. Because there's just, like, there's also just so much that you can talk about with this, like, with this movie. Because it is so gorgeous. And, like, the shots are so carefully put together. Um, Yeah, I mean, you covered sort of, like, the silent movie Influence, and it said that the guy in IMDb trivia it said that the cinematographer um, for this movie had said that people at the time, directors and producers at the time, were relying like too heavily on like overlighting their sets mm-hmm. um, since things were black and white, and that he only ever worked with two directors who he thought really understood light. And one of them was Orson Welles, and one of them was – I. what's his name? I almost called him Christopher Lawton. What is it, though? Charles Lawton. I really messed this up. Charles Lawton. Yeah. But I think that that's, like, a cool point, too. It's, like, um, at the time, because there were some color films, um, movies that were choosing or having to be black and white for budget's sake were, like, overlighting their scenes mm-hmm. because they wanted to, like, make sure that people could still sort of, like, I guess, see what was going on or make up the colors in their minds. So I think um, the conscious choice to have really stark black and really bright white um, throughout the film mm-hmm. was a really cool choice that adds to, like, the eeriness of it all. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I fucking love this movie. I think it's so (laughs) good.
0: So before we forget, how would you rate this movie? How many Bloody Marys out of five would you give Night of the Hunter?
1: Oh, I would give it five Bloody Marys and a beer back. Wow. Like, it's so good. I love this movie so much. And it's a movie that I could and can, or could, not could not can, could and have watched, like, many times, because I just think it's so, like, it is, like, spellbinding.
0: Yeah, it is really beautiful. There are, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the scenes of the kids floating down the river at night, but yeah. it's just a really visually stunning movie, and, and there's a lot of layers to unpack, and it's very creepy.
1: Yeah, and, like, the, um, one of the... Producers said of like when he like when he was watching the film like the one of the like cuts of the film for the first time, mm-hmm. um, that he said he watched the whole thing and then realized like oh I haven't moved yet, so it was like even watching it, in rough cuts was like so, thrilling that people were like just staring and not moving,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's yeah. funny too because that's the first piece of IMDb trivia is that, the director had said to the cast like. And this is, again, 1955. He's like, nowadays, when people go to the movies, they lean back in their chair and they eat their snacks and their popcorn. And he said, I want to make people sit up and pay attention at the movies again. Yeah,
0: sit up straight, even. Yeah,
1: which I love. But I also thought it was so funny because I was like, oh, I wonder what he would think of our, like, Lazy Boy theaters with tables attached (laughs) now. Right. (laughs)
0: Um... Yeah, no, fair point. I'd be interested to see what his thoughts would be on people's current viewing uh, experience. Um, So that is I I would I'm also going to give this movie five out of five Bloody Marys. Um, I think if you've gotten this far and you have not yet watched Night of the Hunter, go do it. Um, It's a Criterion collection, so you will more than likely be able to find it at your local library um, and or find beautiful remasters available on streaming services. Um, So definitely go watch that. Yes. Um,
1: um, also, real quick before we move on too quickly, mm-hmm. um, just a little fun story for you. Um, speaking of the theaters of nowadays, uh, one time I was at a dine-in theater, um, which wasn't even... It was not empty by any means. There was a couple people, but they were like farther away. But you know how those theaters are? Like, they're not that big and they're you're all kind of on the same level.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. So, needless to say, I had been drinking, but I decided it would be a good idea to give the person I was with uh, first a hand and then just, like, (laughs) full-on blowjob in the theater. (laughs) And it was, like, (laughs) right as that started, the waiter, like, came in to give us our check. Mm-hmm. And we both like panicked and like sat up and like tried to act natural. But I feel very certain that that waiter like knew exactly what was happening before he walked.
0: Oh, God. Over. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Um, <laughs> I wonder if that was the first time that happened to that waiter. I'm going to f- assume
1: no. I'm going to, I'm going to, I would put money on that happened so frequently. He probably wasn't even shocked or not even phased. Yeah. Not like pre- pretty nonplussed about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, that brings us to in later news. And this is going to be a harsh shift because our in later news this week is sad. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important. So, um, I think I've talked about on the show before and people probably know that I work in the criminal justice field, um, and so I spent a lot of time sort of reading about and listening to podcasts about issues around criminal justice. And today I was listening to an episode of The Appeal podcast. The episode um, which we'll link to in our show notes was called Locking Up Women for Killing Their Rapists and was talking about this phenomenon um, that unfortunately is not at all uncommon. Uh, in which women who kill men who assaulted them in self-defense are then charged with murder and sentenced with life in prison or really long prison sentences. Um, and so the, um, the podcast episode, yeah, the podcast episode is only about 25, 30 minutes long, um, And it focuses on this case out of Alabama of a woman named Brittany Smith, who was sexually assaulted um, in her home and then uh, was worried for her safety uh, because the guy who assaulted her, she had invited him into her home and invited him to stay over without any sort of like sexual um, content or contact being part of that agreement. She was right. then assaulted, and even if She'd, she
1: had invited into her him into her home with that intention,
0: it would not be okay. Um, yeah, obviously, like if she
1: changed her mind, it's still the same thing.
0: Yeah, um, and so, she, but because that was the the case after the assault happened, he was still in her home, and she didn't feel safe. But she also didn't feel like she. I think it's my impression is that she didn't really feel. Um, like she had a lot of options for what to do because she didn't want to do anything that would make him angry and put her in danger. And so yeah. um, she he wanted cigarettes. She didn't have any and doesn't have a car. So her brother came over to drive them both to get cigarettes while she went into the gas station to buy cigarettes. She gave the attendant a note saying that she had been assaulted and that she was worried for her life. Um, And she also, I believe, either called or texted her mother to let her know it happened. Um, Mm. So her brother found out and went back to the house because the guy was still there and her brother was worried. Her brother and the um, assault, the assailant started fighting um, and she was worried because he was um, choking her brother and her brother could not breathe. And so she told him to get off or he would or she would shoot. He did not. And she shot him and he died. Um, And she is now being charged with first degree murder. Um, Even though Alabama is a stand your ground state, which means that the laws are incredibly lenient as Mm -hmm. far as a lot of states, if you feel like you are in danger, require that you try to retreat if you are able. Um, States that have stand your ground laws do not make that requirement. If you feel like you're in danger, you are allowed to use deadly force um, without having the sort of duty to try to retreat from the situation. Um, And even with self-defense and stand your ground and the fact that it was in her own home, um, she's still being charged. And so I think that unfortunately, like I said, um, she is not alone. There are tons of other cases in which this happens all over the country. Um, And I think it's something that is worth sort of making yourself aware of. So Um, I will link in our show notes to a New Yorker article called How Far Can Abused Women Go to Protect Themselves, as well as the episode of the Appeal podcast, which will talk a little bit about um, Brittany Smith's case, as well as sort of the broader implications and and why this continues to happen in different states.
1: Um, Also, I know I mentioned this before, but this also connects again to the Chasing Cosby podcast, Mm -hmm. um, because they have an expert who's in a couple different episodes of that podcast, who talks about how in um like rape and assault cases in general um defenses like the defense will often lean on the fact that uh sometimes uh survivors of sexual abuse or of rape will like continue contact with the person that assaulted them mm-hmm. um and that's has so many different things like there's so many different things that that has to do with um but a lot of times that, like, women are in shock and, like, can't even process or comprehend what's happened to them. So they don't even always, like... So they don't always react, like, the way that, you know, whatever certain people think that they should. Um, and it's not that uncommon for women to, like, continue contact with someone who has, um, like, attacked them. And they talk about that a lot because, like, in the, in the case of Bill Cosby... Um, like some of the women that he raped he raped like more than once and yeah. for a lot of them it's like they, they trusted him so much so that and because they were unconscious for what had happened to them like mm-hmm. it didn't even occur to them what was going on until like the second or third time like they their brain like whether their brain couldn't completely make that connection um, for their own safety, you know, because, like, sometimes your brain can't let yourself know that that's the case. Right. Um, Or because of just, like, that they trusted this person and they never would have expected that. Um, But they really talk about how that also comes up a lot in the Bill Cosby case because, unfortunately, for the defense, like, a lot of the lawyers were like, well, like if you like if you felt threatened or you felt unsafe with him, like why did you call him afterwards? Like stuff like that that's similar.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this might be hard for people to grasp. And I think we know that it is because it comes up again and again. There are all kinds of reasons why women who are the victims of sexual assault may continue to have contact with the person who assaulted them. Um, and those, those reasons are varied and personal and legitimate. And I personally find that anyone who tries to attack the legitimacy of a victim's claim based on the fact that she still had contact with her attacker after the fact, um, can fuck right off, honestly.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, especially because it's like when in those same exact cases, like it's so counterintuitive because you're presenting a woman or a victim with so much like distrust and dismissal that like the reason for a lot of people why they might not come forward or might not report it is because they feel like you're going to react that way or like that more people are going to react that way. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's
1: just like, it's so like, it's such a vicious cycle in that way.
0: Yeah. And I think that, the idea that women might still feel um, pressure in some way or another to still have contact with their abuser is only um, made more potent when their abuser is someone who has a lot of power, which we obviously know was the case with um, Bill Cosby and with Harvey Weinstein. And Mm -hmm. you and I talked a little bit a little bit in New Orleans that um, after you had talked about the Chasing Cosby podcast, I also wanted to recommend um, another podcast Um, about the cases against Harvey Weinstein. The podcast is called The Catch and Kill Podcast. Um, I promise we're not going to become a show that only recommends other podcasts. But um, I think that when we are listening to something that feels uh, really relevant or important, I think it's it's good for us to share that because What kind of brunch are you going to these days where people aren't telling you what they're listening to right now? (laughs) Um, But the Catch and Kill podcast is hosted by Ronan Farrow, who, of course, was one of the uh, journalists responsible for breaking the news story about Harvey Weinstein. And the podcast Catch and Kill, similarly to Chasing Cosby, is him sort of talking about investigating the case over um, many, many months and the 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 different avenues of power by which um, Weinstein and his associates tried to kill the story. Um, he also talks to survivors who recount their stories of abuse and or just talk about their experiences trying to report the abuse and not being believed yeah. or why they didn't come forward. Um, I think both of these podcasts are really important. If you're someone who has ever um, heard or read about allegations of sexual abuse and you have asked yourself, well, why didn't they report it earlier? Or why did they keep talking to the person? Or why this? Why that? Questions that place blame at the foot of the victim. I think that these podcasts are really important to get to hear Mm -hmm. those women speak about their experience and really um, put into context how completely debilitating and life altering and and earth shattering something like this can be and how um how unnecessarily reductive those questions can be when the thing that you are dealing with is so much bigger and harder to wrap your hands around than than that question allows yeah Yeah. um so please listen to both of those podcasts um, unless they feel like a thing that is not good for you to listen to, in which case, take care of yourself and don't listen to them. Um, so as I alluded to on our last episode, we did receive our very first fan email, Hannah, and I wanted to read it here on the show
1: moving on up in the world.
0: Yeah, we you know, we are making moves. And so if you want to email us the
1: Joe Rogan experience.
0: Ew, please don't. Um, Wait, is
1: that what is that the right <laughs> name? I just mean like a really popular podcast. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but I feel like Joe Rogan is a person that I don't want to be compared to.
1: <laughs> I just meant a popular so, podcast. Okay.
0: <laughs> pick another one. Pick like um, something great. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're the movies. new This American Life. <laughs>
1: This American is life. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel we should now um, alter our voices and change to like a soft tone where. Um, let's go ahead and read that listener mail. I should also get really close to my mic because I feel like all NPR podcasts sound like that. <laughs> So,
0: um, if you have feedback for us, you can email us, uh, our email address is the number 28 days at gmail.com. And we might just read your email on the show. Um, friend of the podcast, Jose sent an email. He says, Hey, 28 days later, I appreciate the shout out for the cupcake drawing. It meant a lot. If you had to come up with a band name aside from Colorado space, Butt, what would you name your band? Thanks for your podcast. It has brought me lots of laughs and helps me when I'm feeling down. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like I am i should say out loud that uh, Jose is a dear friend of mine. So obviously, I really appreciate that email. That. Let people um, think that we
1: just have like a, a fan.
0: <laughs> I mean, he is a fan, but we should be honest that he's a person yeah. I know in real life, too. Uh, outside of to the honest. internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Hannah... I feel like just like uh, Jake Peralta on ninety nine uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine loves to yell name of my sex tape. You love to yell uh, dibs on that band name. So, do you have any band names that you would like um, to make a claim to now?
1: Um, well, this is really hard because I feel like in the process of doing this, we've had so many where I've said that we've been like, mm-hmm. and now you can't I remember cousin. them, and now I can't remember any of them. <laughs> I might have to I might have to like think on that. Okay. Or like go back to um, some of the old ones and see.
0: I what feel I've said like before.
1: although my favorite one I ever came up with was Surprise Pickle. Actually that's perfect. Um
0: my, Yeah, that's a great one.
1: My friend and I one time and this was one of the first ones that we ever did where we got like really into the band name um gag was actually drinking a Bloody Mary when we found a surprise pickle in the bottom of the Bloody Mary and I called it a surprise pickle and he was like now that is a band name
0: (laughs) and actually you saying that makes me feel like I think I would want my band name to be the Bloody Mayas what if we were like Bloody Maya and the surprise pickle
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's um that's pretty good
0: so that's, like, kind of a grade A band name that we've just created. So, Jose, I hope you appreciate that.
1: My uh, my one friend is actually, he's in a band where it's a female lead singer with three um, backing, like, men. So it's, like, both mm-hmm. guitarist and, and drummer all men. And they all have, mm-hmm. like, like a, a lot of hair, <laughs> like, man buns and facial hair and stuff. And there was a period of time when they were looking for a band name, and I said that they should call themselves... Well, the girl's name, I don't know if I said her, the lead singer's name is Sunshine. Um, and I said that they should call their their band Sunshine and the Terrifying Lesbians. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty great band name, too. <laughs> <laughs> but they went with Lakeside Fire, so check them out on SoundCloud. Uh,
0: uh, that's God. also a cool name, but I mean, nothing I beats Sunshine SoundCloud. and the Terrifying Lesbians. <laughs> um well, thank you all for joining us again on another week of 28 Days Later. Next week, we're going to be joined again by our amazing, indescribable, beautiful friend, Cece, to discuss Birds of Prey.
1: The name has recently been changed to Harley Quinn's
0: Birds of Prey. Oh, right. Isn't it something like the Emancipation of Harley Quinn well, and the something it, or something? That's what something.
1: it was originally. But then because it had such a disappointing opening week, they... They literally have been, they literally changed it at movie theaters to say Harley Quinn's Birds of Prey.
0: Wowzers. Anyway, um, spoiler alert, Cece has seen it and really enjoyed it. And I think it's important to note that a favorite of both of ours, Doja Cat, did a song for the soundtrack. So you should definitely tune in next week because I can already guarantee that the conversation is going to be lit. (laughs)
1: can't wait you can just go yeah. down go down go down to your local cinema and watch that film
0: oh hands! that was so beautiful I already have so many great Doja Cat things to link to that aren't even related to the movie and I cannot wait <laughs> <laughs> um, it's gonna be like the springboard episode for our women we admire Doja Cat episode
1: yeah basically
0: basically um, but yeah come back and join us for that next week and uh, until then
1: So close,
0: one of these days.